This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Bob Salter. Welcome to our program here on WFAN on Sunday mornings. Yes. Now, those of you with heart conditions may want to sit down. I have an announcement to make. This week's show and next week's show, we're on till 8 o'clock. Ho, 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 easy now. Easy, easy. I know it's been a while. Yes, we are blessed during the holidays. Our full show is back from 6 until 8 on uh, this Sunday morning and next Sunday. And uh, we are going to have a very good program today. Because in both hours of our show today, we are blessed to have folks who have talked with us before on um, our program. And we've had uh, good discussions. Guest who is joining us in hour number one of our program is a distinguished doctor. He's the director of the Division of Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at Hackensack um, Meridian University Medical Center in uh, New Jersey. He's authored numerous articles on the topic of Parkinson's disease, and that's basically what we're going to be talking about in this hour of our program. I'll mention the fact, too, that at any point during our show today, you can uh, join us via the phone at 877-337-6666. That's our number here at The Fan. Uh, Dr. Human Osmi is joining us on our program. Dr. Osmi has spent the last 10 years developing some interesting uh, protocols and programs around Parkinson's disease and the care of patients. And he is also the co-author of Parkinson's Disease for the Hospitalist, Managing the Complex Care of a Vulnerable Population. The book comes our way from Lioncrest Publishing. He is a partner at North Jersey Brain and Spine Center. It's nice to have you join us again on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. There are many areas to go in uh, this discussion, but let me ask you first of all about um, the book. What are your thoughts now that the book is out? So we're very excited that the book is out. You know, there's a lack of, uh, unfortunately, lack of knowledge uh, with uh, healthcare professionals uh, in terms of caring for Parkinson's patients. And this really comes to a head when Parkinson's patients are admitted to the hospital. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, there's uh, several um, articles and studies that have shown when pa- patients with Parkinson's are admitted to the hospital, they, they can worsen uh, because of uh, general lack of knowledge about Parkinson's disease. So um, our, our book is an effort to um, try to elevate that knowledge and improve the care of Parkinson's patients when they're admitted to the hospital and, of course, improve their safety. Okay, some of the people who are listening to us are going to think, well, wait a minute, why is there this lack of knowledge about Parkinson's disease? 
Well, Parkinson's is is uh, not a, a very common disorder. So uh, about one percent of the population has it, and often uh, patients go into the hospital not for Parkinson's disease, but they go in for uh, reasons we all go to the hospital: stomach problems, you know, the uh, knee pain, back pain, and and the diagnosis of Parkinson's is often um, um, not the primary diagnosis that. Uh, that patients uh, um, come to the hospital with. Uh, so uh, combined with the fact that it is not a very uh, common uh, disorder, uh, those things uh, make care of it in the hospital um, a little bit more difficult. And when you talk about exactly what Parkinson's disease involves, um, you know, as you said couple of moments ago, talked about 1% of the population has Parkinson's disease. So there are a whole lot of people who probably don't know exactly what this is like. How do you explain it in layman's terms? Sure. So Parkinson's disease is a neurological disorder uh, that um, uh, starts affecting uh, our ability to, to move. Uh, so some people may develop tremors, some people may develop uh, stiffness of their limbs and slowness of their movement, uh, and this can progress over time. It's very different in, in each patient. Some, some people progress uh, uh, more rapidly, some people more, more slowly, but in effect, uh, their ability to move what we call motor um, uh, parts, uh, motor symptoms, um, uh, uh, are affected, uh, and they do require medication to help uh, ease these symptoms and improve these symptoms. In addition, Parkinson's has a, a non-motor symptoms, symptoms like uh, depression and anxiety that go hand-in-hand hand with Parkinson's disease uh, that patients with Parkinson's are also uh, affected with. So when you're talking about Parkinson's and approaches to it, I mean... You have to come at this with, I guess, several different perspectives? Absolutely. Parkinson's affects uh, different systems, and it's, it's really important to, uh, to be able to understand the fact that it's not just something that affects movement. It can affect mood. It can affect sleep. It can affect uh, the GI system, meaning um, constipation and, and swallowing can be affected. So um, seeking care uh, from an expert in Parkinson's disease is really critical to try to uh, get all of these uh, uh, um, issues at bay and uh, live as best as possible with Parkinson's disease and live well with Parkinson's disease. I've got to ask you the question because I'm always curious about this. How much time is really spent in um, in medical school, in, in textbooks especially, and in lectures on Parkinson's disease? This is a very good question. I think uh, it's not just Parkinson's disease. As um, care of patients becomes more complicated um, and more uh, drugs come out and uh, as, as students we have to learn about all of these things. So um, the time spent for each disorder gets smaller and smaller. 
So in medical school, we may get a very general understanding of of neurology and even a, a more general understanding of Parkinson's disease. But to really become an expert in taking care of Parkinson's disease, or for that matter, any any other disorder, we go um, physicians after medical school undergo training in a specific area. Let's say for Parkinson's, they undergo neurology. Uh, so they do a residency in, in neurology that could be anywhere from uh, two to three years. And then beyond that, they do uh, uh, for specialty tra- uh, training in, in Parkinson's, they do what's called a fellowship. So that's a subspecialization in the field of neurology. That's That could be, again, another one, one, two, or sometimes three years with expert training in that disorder. So someone that is a fellowship trained in Parkinson's disease really has spent a lot of time learning about the disorder and how to treat it. Uh, And uh, just like um, if you would um, uh, have a very, very specialized cardiologist uh, that knows about arrhythmias and they go through this whole process of residency and fellowship and so forth, that really uh, knows that and distinguishes themselves from, um, let's say, an internal medicine doctor. The same is uh, with Parkinson's disease. Uh, a, A movement disorder specialist, a Parkinson's specialist, has has uh, um, a lot of training in the treatment of this disorder. All right, I have to ask as well, uh, because this question often comes up, who is most susceptible, are we finding, to developing Parkinson's disease? Well, I think the the biggest risk factor um, is just getting older. Uh, People that are in their 60s and 70s have a a higher propensity to develop the disorder. So that's really the biggest risk factor, although there there is a group of Parkinson's uh, 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 disease that uh, occurs in younger uh, patients called young onset Parkinson's disease that may occur uh, in the 40s, actually. Uh, But in general, age is, uh, uh, as we get older, we're, we're more prone to developing Parkinson's disease. And uh, the, so far, there has not been um, a, a clear-cut reason people uh, develop Parkinson's disease. We, ha- we have not discovered that, although there are some families that have genes, and more genes are being discovered. Um, and the, these genes make people more prone to developing the Parkinson's disease. But the thought is that Parkinson's is a kind of a um, a, a two-step process. Uh, Someone has a propensity to develop it, and something in the environment triggers that development. Something like? Um, so there, there's concerns about uh, dry cleaning uh, uh, chemicals, uh, pesticides, herbicides. Um, uh, th- those things are, have been uh, a suspect, actually, for, for some time. Mm. So when we're talking about a situation where somebody has been admitted to a hospital, I mean, is part of the problem that they might not get their medications on time? That's correct. So uh, patients with Parkinson's, particularly if they've had Parkinson's for some time, become very dependent on their medication, mm-hmm. meaning, meaning they really need to get it 
exactly when it's due. Uh, and it takes some time with their doctor uh, when they're not in the hospital, when they're doing well for, for that medication to be fine-tuned. Okay, take a little bit at this time, uh, you know, wait three hours, take the next dose. And that, that fine-tuning really is critical. Uh, and um, and when uh, we go to the hospital, that that may not um, uh, be well known, unfortunately. And different times could be put on medications, and and uh, it can really affect people with Parkinson's disease. And you could wind up with the situation with like what are referred to as contraindicated medication. That's that's a se- yes, that's a separate um, uh, side of it. Uh, but often, what you can uh, end up uh, uh, having a situation where the patient's medications are either not available at the hospital, or there are alternatives available that are given to the patient, which shouldn't be. Um, patients should really stay on the medicines that their doctors prescribe, uh, and uh, or the timing can. can can be affected for you know if someone has let's say high blood pressure if they get their medicine at eight in the morning or ten in the morning it's not a major um, issue but if someone that has Parkinson's disease and their medication is due at eight o'clock gets their medicine past eight fifteen or eight thirty even you know even fifteen minutes has been shown to to affect uh, their their movements and and cause issues on top of it what you brought up is there are certain very commonly used medications in the hospital that should not be used in uh, patients with Parkinson's disease. And uh, and that is also, unfortunately, not a, um, a well-known uh, fact. All right. I want to talk more with you on uh, this topic. We're talking with Dr. Human Osmi, and we'll continue with him this Sunday morning. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter, and we are in a discussion with Dr. Human Osmi on our program. Dr. Osmi is the director of the Division of Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at Hackensack Meridian University Medical Center in New Jersey. Uh, he is joining us also as the partner at North Jersey Brain and Spine Center, co-author of Parkinson's Disease for the Hospitalist. Managing the Complex Care of a Vulnerable Population, the book published by uh, Lion Crest Publishing. He's co-author of that book, and uh, he has joined us for this hour of our program. I mentioned earlier what we'll try to do before we are done in this hour is um, work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us on uh, this topic of uh, Parkinson's disease. This has um, touched the lives of a lot of people um, over the years, and it's an area of concern for a lot of folks, too, as they start to age, because one of the things that was stated in the first portion of our discussion when I asked the question about who's most susceptible to developing Parkinson's disease. Um, You said it's people in their 60s and 70s, and it's one of those things that's a concern as people age. You know, as I was thinking about this discussion today and also thinking about the book. One of the things that um, I wanted to share with folks listening to our discussion today is um, the fact that the approach that has been taken at um, the medical center, Hackensack Meridian Health University Medical Center in uh, New Jersey, is it's really multidisciplinary. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and why that's an important approach? 
Absolutely. I think uh, so. I think that is going to more and more reflect how um, we care for different patient populations in the hospital. Uh, so to make something successful, um, particularly in a hospital system, you, we need to have involvement from all different parts of the hospital that um, that their their um, activity affects the care of that patient. So someone with Parkinson's, when they come in, it, it's not just the uh, the nursing, but it also involves um, uh, pharmacy. It uh, involves availability of medicine. It involves it involves physical therapy. It involves you know everyone that takes care of that patient. Uh, di- dietary, basically, um, um, it it really behooves all of us to come together to make sure that we're doing the best we can for that patient. Um, and that is com- compounded by the fact that, I, as I mentioned, most people that come into the, the hospital um, with Parkinson's disease don't come in for Parkinson's uh, problems. They come in, let's say they come in to have a knee replacement. They come in uh, to have back surgery. And uh, so the, the Parkinson's kind of gets lost in the shuffle there, and it really can affect their outcome. So it really is, is important for hospital systems to be aware of that uh, and, and recognize that Parkinson's should not be thought of as, as um, you know, just another disorder. It really should be um, kind of front and center in the care of that patient. Um, and, and we've been able to successfully achieve that at uh, Hackensack Medical Center. This idea of um, some of the uh, symptoms of Parkinson's that, that stand out, one of the ones that is talked about and you mentioned this earlier, is this idea of um, tremors. Some people will talk about um, shaking. I mean, if someone is experiencing um, tremors, is that necessarily a precursor to development of Parkinson's? Not necessarily. Actually, um, you bring up a a good point, and again, I I will keep coming back to this, that um, if anyone is having um, any questions or symptoms, either whether they think they have Parkinson's disease, someone has told them you you may be getting Parkinson's disease, or they've had had Parkinson's disease for several years, it's very important to get to a Parkinson's specialist to tease these issues out and make sure they're getting the best care possible. So in fact, the tremor um, or shaking of the limbs uh, is a a very, very common uh, um, symptom. And most of of, uh, people that have tremors have a condition called uh, benign essential tremor. That is um, really un, uh, unrelated to Parkinson's, although there could be some crossover. But it, it's it's its own uh, uh, thing. It is just tremors. It does not progress to other symptoms be, besides tremors. 
Um, so that that's important to distinguish those, those two. Uh, and also, uh, the other important thing is not everyone with Parkinson's will have a tremor. And this is a common misconception, you know, in, in the hospital with, and, uh, you know, and this has been a, an unfortunate national uh, problem. Uh, people say, well, this person doesn't have tremors. How could they have Parkinson's disease? But that's not true. Uh, many, many patients with Parkinson's have no tremor uh, and had never had any tremor. So uh, it is important to distinguish that Parkinson's can be uh, different for every patient, and this, uh, the combination of symptoms is, is very different in each patient. And how often is the incidence of confusion pres- present in Parkinson's patients? So, you know, it, it, so confusion can, uh, so there's, there's different areas where, where confusions can occur. If, out of the hospital, um, um, it, it, not every patient, by the way, with Parkinson's, but some patients with Parkinson's can have uh, episodes of confusion. And uh, there's some reports that uh, perhaps anywhere from 30 uh, percent or so uh, of patients with Parkinson's at some point will develop symptoms that will uh, give rise uh, to to confusion. Um, and uh, but again, that is very very. Uh, um, different in each patient, and it doesn't mean if someone has Parkinson's, they will absolutely develop Parkinson's disease. Now, on the other hand, in the hospital, people can develop confusion even if they don't have Parkinson's disease. The medications we give in the hospital, the lack of sleep that is in the hospital, the beeping and the waking up to take blood pressure and just be, you know, being ill um, can cause confusion. Uh, in anyone, uh, regardless of whether they have Parkinson's. If someone has Parkinson's, these risks are even higher, particularly if they do not get the medicine on time, and particularly if they get medicine that is they're not supposed to. Uh, and, and this increases the risk of confusion for Parkinson's patients when they're in the hospital. And the other area, well, there's a couple other areas I wanted to ask about because these often come up in discussions like this surrounding Parkinson's. What about the incidence of um, swallowing difficulties? So, so uh, as we discussed in the beginning, people with Parkinson's, uh, uh, and, and Parkinson's disease is in a, a disorder that affects many different aspects of, of, uh, of the person's uh, body. Uh, one of those is the GI system or the uh, the uh, gut, essentially, from swallowing all the way to constipation. Uh, And uh, people with Parkinson's can develop difficulty with swallowing. Uh, And uh, this is um, an unfortunately common um, phenomenon. Um, It it can occur uh, later on in, in the disease process. Uh, but there, there are ways certainly to to help that physical uh, speech therapy. Actually, swallowing therapy uh, can be effective. Teaching patients uh, wh- how to eat or what to eat or, and uh, is is important in getting around these problems. Uh, so again, going to a facility, going to a doctor that is well versed in Parkinson's disease, uh, and they would usually have. Um, 
knowledge about these, and they would uh, usually have uh, uh, contact points to send patients to uh, if these problems are developing. To Again, the goal is to make sure the patients are living well with Parkinson's and uh, have the best quality of life as possible. What about falls? So falls are uh, a, a problem. Now, uh, again, uh, out, let's talk about outside the hospital and inside the hospital. Mm-hmm. So uh, patients with Parkinson's uh, um, can have a propensity to fall, uh, particularly as uh, the disorder uh, uh, gets advanced uh, for a few reasons. One is there's a inherent balance problem that occurs with Parkinson's disease. And also as we get older, our balance gets affected. Uh, so, uh, so that is on one hand. On the other hand, people with Parkinson's can have blood pressure fluctuations. Uh, and their blood pressure can go up and down a little bit erratically. And when the, uh, as uh, you know, one of the things uh, that, uh, that can occur is uh, if they stand up too fast, uh, they can actually uh, have a close to a blackout um, uh, um, feeling, and uh, and uh, they they can get dizzy and fall because the blood pressure is low. For so for these issues, um, um, people can have a high propensity to fall. Now, in the hospital, again, that's compounded by by um, the medications that we give, uh, you know, uh, confusion that may occur. So um, anyone can fall in a hospital. And one of the, in the last decade, uh, it has been a lot of uh, great work that has been done to prevent falls in the hospital for all patients, not just people with Parkinson's disease, but for all patients. But that, that is still a concern when someone's in the hospital. You know, you mentioned a couple moments ago about um, speech therapy, um, physical therapy. And, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, has that, have there been advances made in that in, in recent years that, um, you know, maybe five, ten years ago just were not available or were not approaches taken with Parkinson's patients? So th- there has been improvement of, uh, of what we know about Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and uh, and for one thing, there have been a few um, studies that have shown that exercise um, actually can slow down the Parkinson's process. So one of the biggest and most important things that we discuss with our patients is continued uh, activity. You know, a sedentary lifestyle is really not good for anything, particularly for Parkinson's disease. So we know now with, with evidence that activity actually benefits a Parkinson's patient. You know, stretching, uh, aerobics, and strengthening is, is critically important in people with Parkinson's disease. And actually, there's been great programs that have developed uh, across the country, well, Parkinson-specific wellness programs. We have an excellent one at a Hackensack, actually. But there's also other programs like boxing that has, uh, have, has uh, come out, and, and people are really enjoying it, and it's really helping them stay fit and improve their balance and improve their agility. So that that's great. Um, and, and as far as the speech uh, uh, and swallow goes, there's been you know it's more than a decade, but there are some excellent programs uh, that have uh, been developed specifically for Parkinson's disease. Um, uh, for example, there, there's a program called the Lee Silverman Speech Therapy (LSVT) 
loud, uh, and a speech therapist has to get certified in that, has to get extra training in that, and it really does help people with Parkinson's in, in terms of their speech and swallowing. And they have also more recently developed something called LSVT Big, which is a physical therapy program uh, for Parkinson's disease, based on the same same uh, concepts um, to to help people with Parkinson's um, walk better, with better balance, and so forth. Mm. Most interesting discussion we're having on our program on the fan. You want to join us? Eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six is our phone number. We're talking with Dr. Human Azmi. He's the director of the Division of Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at Hackensack Meridian University Medical Center in uh, New Jersey. He is also the co-author of Parkinson's Disease for the Hospitalist, Managing the Complex Care of a Vulnerable Population. The uh, book is published by Lioncrest uh, Publishing. And uh, Dr. Osme is a partner at North Jersey Brain and Spine Center. And uh, he's joined us on our program. We're talking about this topic of uh, Parkinson's disease and also um, she shared some information that is taken in the approach uh, with the book and some of the work that he has been doing uh, at the medical center. We'll also talk about a um, uh, award uh, certification or designation, I guess is the correct term, that um, the facility has received that's very significant too, that's right along the lines of things that we are talking about. But again, you can join us, 877-337-6666. Radio.com. Radio.com. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Dr. Human Azmi. Uh, Dr. Azmi is the director of the Division of Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at Hackensack Meridian University Medical Center in New Jersey. He's the co-author of Parkinson's Disease for the Hospitalist, Managing the Complex Care of a Vulnerable Population. The book is published by Lioncrest Publishing. He is also a partner at North Jersey Brain and Spine Center. By the way, can you tell us a little bit about the center? Oh, absolutely. We we are uh, one of the largest uh, neurosurgical practices in northern New Jersey. Um, covering all aspects of uh, of uh, neurosurgery from pediatrics to adult, uh, and uh, um, we um, uh, really strive to to offer the, really the best and expert care in uh, neurosurgery. You know, as you say that, I'm sitting here and thinking to myself, pediatric neurosurgery, um, and you just. It, the, I mean, it's wonderful that you have that as part of your practice, but I just think something's wrong there, that that even occurs, uh, that there's even a need for that. Um, uh, no, you're, 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 you're really, it's a, it's a kind of a visceral feeling when you right. hear about that. You're absolutely correct, but, but uh, the good news is there's, there's some great advances for care of uh, children. Um, uh, that God forbid have a neuro- neurosurgical issue, and uh, and also uh, the majority of the problems are are treatable, mm-hmm. uh, so that that is good news. Now, this past June, uh, the medical center got a disease specific certification designation for Parkinson's disease. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that is so 
significant and important? Absolutely. It is very significant. So there, there is an organization in the United States called the Joint Commission, uh, and their job is to give hospitals accreditation, meaning they, they allow permission for hospitals to, to function. So they give certification to operate, basically, to hospitals. And over the years, uh, the, the Joint Commission has developed these uh, specialty programs uh, that actually give extra certification to a hospital if that hospital provides evidence that they are they're expert in the care of a particular um, population. For example, there's many programs out there that are specific to joint replacement, so knee replacement and hip replacement. There's many hospitals that have been awarded extra certification and because of their expertise in, in taking care of uh, or, or doing joint surgeries, doing hip surgeries and knee surgeries and so forth. Uh, so, and what it does is it highlights a hospital's ability to um, provide expert care and safe care for that patient population. And it also holds the hospital to a higher standard uh, to take care of this patient population. And so what we were able to do was uh, uh, basically put together a program over the last several years for Parkinson's disease that just ultimately uh, received this extra uh, certification from the Joint Commission. It actually, we're the first hospital in the country to have received that, first inpatient acute hospital in the country to have received that certification for the extra care of patients with Parkinson's disease. And, and I think that's very significant. Uh, it, tells, um, it tells the world that uh, Hackensack is an exceptionally uh, great hospital, particularly for the care of, uh, as far as this program goes, for the care of patients with Parkinson's disease, and but also holds us to a higher standard that we have to perform and we have to keep this going and, and uh, make sure this program is, is thrives and, and uh, improves. Congratulations on receiving that designation. Thank you very much. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at the fan. What we'll do is try to take a uh, call or two um, from some folks listening to us on uh, the topic of Parkinson's. We've got uh, Dr. Human Osmi talking with us on our program. Let's go first to um, Martha in uh, Connecticut. Martha, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's... it's <laughs> It's kind of funny. My, I was listening to the radio, and uh, I do listen to the fan. And I heard, first of all, I'd like to know how Dr. Hosney, how his name is spelled. So if I'm trying to find the book, I can. Sure, it's A-Z-M-I is my last name. A-Z-M-I, and your first name, doctor? It, it's Homan, H-O-O-M-A-N. H-O-O-M-A. Oh, A-Z-N-I. My husband has Parkinson's, and... Uh, he was he's 84. He was diagnosed about four years ago with it. Unfortunately, about three weeks ago, he fell and has a uh, had a partial hip replacement. And now he's in rehab. But he seems to be have gone downhill mentally um, since the fall. And uh, Martha. His surgeon said, "Well, that could be post-operative delirium." But what I'm I'm beginning after listening to you, which is really kind of uh, I don't know uh, enlightening, I guess is the best word, is that 
the confusion that he's suffering right now, does that have to be permanent or or because I think they've screwed up his medication, I think a whole lot of things. Uh, is there anything that can be done to kind of bring him back to where he was before? So uh, first of all, I'm sorry to hear what you're going through. Um, so just as a general uh, thing, a lot of people, whether they have Parkinson's or not, may develop some confusion or delirium after surgery as a result of anesthesia and some of the medicines that are given um, before or after anesthesia. Uh, and um, and uh, you know, in Parkinson's, that's obviously uh, compounded and it's amplified. So um, absolutely, it's important to make sure that he's not getting medication he's not supposed to, uh, and also that um, if he has a Parkinson's neurologist, it's really good to consult with that person. Uh, he or she will be able to kind of sort those issues out and uh, and uh, um, see if something can can be addressed. Um, and hopefully, as as uh, things settle in and he leaves that rehab environment, um, hopefully he'll he'll turn the corner. It's very difficult to predict. Pain medicine is one of the things that can affect people in a uh, in a. Uh, a negative way. Um, also, I should I should mention there's a very very important uh, thing that uh, it's a great tool for any patient or or some a loved one uh, of, with someone with Parkinson's disease is put out by the Parkinson's Foundation. It's called the Aware in Care Kit, uh, and it's available free to anyone if you just Google that Aware in Care. Uh, and it, it essentially is a, all the stuff that we are talking about, uh, they have put it uh, in a paper form. And uh, it's it basically meant as a tool for someone that has Parkinson's that's going to the hospital, assuming that the hospital doesn't know about Parkinson's disease and kind of enumerates all these things, the medicines that are not supposed to be given. What is Parkinson's disease? Importance of the timing of medicine is all in there. Um, and uh, and also they encourage people to bring the medicine that they are on to the hospital. So people in the hospital can actually see exactly what someone's in and find out from the family member the timing of the medicine. So it's, it's, I'm sorry, I'm laughing, Dr. Hussey, but when they, when someone goes to the hospital, they don't give a good hang. <laughs> what, what do you think? They just assume that you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, not you, me. Uh, and that, you know, we know what we're doing and anything you have to say is irrelevant. You know, you're, 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 unfortunately what you're saying is true and it's not, it's just because of the way hospitals are set up right now. Things are very busy um, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it just takes time to sit down with a patient and the family member to kind of find out. And, and you're absolutely right, particularly with Parkinson's, no one knows 
how someone does with medicine better than the family and the patient themselves. So it's really, really critical to to sit down with the patient and and uh, or the family member and say, okay, what are you on? What exactly are you on? What times do you take it? And make sure that's reflected in the in in the uh, chart in the hospital. And that's that's uh, part of the efforts uh, um, of of uh, the Parkinson's Foundation with this Aware and Care Kit, and also behooves all family members to to make sure that you 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 are advocates for for the patient. I know it's very difficult. You know the healthcare uh, system as a whole needs to be a, to do a much better job. You're absolutely correct. We need to do a much better job to take uh, in taking care of Parkinson's patients. But but you know from the family side, there is absolutely your right to tell doctors and nurses what your your husband has and what their medications are and they he, they should consult a movement disorder neurologist whether it's by phone or sending him to to his uh, uh neurologist just to make sure things are sorted properly mm-hmm. i don't well i'll tell you i don't think in my husband's instance they ever con- contacted his neurologist uh and she is she's excellent but um she has her own practice and the next town uh it's it uh this i i heard you say about the timing of the medication and i've been very careful that my husband has been getting it on the right you know times every day but that's of course got all screwed up in the hospital mm-hmm. is it i guess what i'm looking for an answer for it, is it retrievable if once he's out of this rehab place and we can reestablish the pattern? Will that make a difference? So or you know, is it already a- uh, so not not seeing your husband or uh, or um, being able to review what's going on, it's hard for me to say. Mm-hmm. But but often there is a a way to to fix the problem. So and it, and I I know you're very frustrated and I feel terrible about what you're going through, but it may be as simple as calling the neurologist and say this is what's happening, would you mind talking to these people uh and uh, putting them in touch. And it's it's terrible you're you're you have to do that, but that's where um that's where we are right now and hopefully in time that will change. Martha, we've got to go here. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Thank thank you very much for your call this morning. Let's see if we can squeeze in another call here uh, before we wrap up. Lillian in the Bronx has been holding forever. Lillian, good morning. We have just a couple minutes here. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, I have a quick question that I would like to ask. Um, I have just lost my brother, and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's three years ago, three and a half years ago, of which he really didn't have um, a lot of symptoms and whatnot. He, most of his was the rigidness. But then he started having, you know, like, say, with his memory, um, he would have some hallucinations and um, short-term memory loss and whatnot. Anyhow, moving ahead, in June, he that week, he was just so disoriented and lost and whatnot. I wound up being able to get him admitted to the hospital. And... Um, they did all kinds of tests, the CAT scan, everything came back with nothing wrong and whatnot. And the next day, 
he uh, was telling me these stories that were way out there. So it coincided with what was happening for the whole week. And then that night and for the next, like, six nights, they had to subdue him with um, for, for, for his anxiety, agitation, They to give him medicine. They took five and four and five people to hold him down. Mm. So in that time, they told me that he had what they call Louis Body's dementia. Can right. you tell me, is this a routine dementia that happens with Parkinson's uh, patients? Okay, so um, thank you for asking that question. I'm sorry about your loss. Um, I just want to say again how important it is to make sure a Parkinson's expert um, answers these questions if this I mean, it's unfortunately a little bit late for, for your, your brother, but um, if someone has questions about Parkinson's, Lewy body dementia, so forth, they really need to see a Parkinson's expert to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. So in a general sense, there, there is a whole um, group of disorders that we put in the family of Parkinsonism um, or, or Parkinson's-like syndromes. And only one of them is actually what we call Parkinson's disease, which is the, um, the, the disorder that responds to medication. Uh, so again, it's important to, to see someone that is an expert to tease these things out and uh, be able to properly diagnose the patient. Lillian, thank you very much for your call. I'm sorry we don't have any more time here. Um, I wish we had better news for you than that, too. Dr. Human Azmi is the director of the Division of Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at Hackensack Meridian University Medical Center in New Jersey, co-author of Parkinson's Disease for the Hospital List, Managing the Complex Care of a Vulnerable Population, published by Lioncrest Publishing, and he's a partner at North Jersey Brain and Spine Center. Thank you very much for joining us on our program. Thank you so much, Bob. And certainly good luck with your work, too, and happy holidays we got a lot more to get to. Another hour on tap. Radio.com. Radio.com. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Along after our 8 o'clock update, it's Rick Wolf and the Sports Edge program. Football Sunday program is along in front of a whole lot of football action on the fan. Football Sunday with Malusis and Deal. And they're on the road with that program this week. That's after our 9 o'clock update. Well, we are with you until 8 this morning. Gee, you know, I almost don't know how to do this. Do I have that kind of stamina to make it till 8? Yeah, of course I do. Well, this hour of our program, we should have a very interesting discussion the guest has uh, joined us before on our program a couple of years back. We had the um, privilege to speak with uh, Dr. Brad Radu, who is endowed chair of the Tobacco Harm Reduction uh, Program at University of uh, Louisville. And uh, he is uh, joining us on our program to talk about some of the work in the area of tobacco harm reduction and also, appropriately enough, as we uh, move toward the new year, and people will be talking about things they're looking to do as a new year is almost upon us. One of those traditional discussions gets into this whole idea of quitting smoking. Uh, 
and we'll talk about exactly where we are in terms of the number of people who are smoking. First of all, Doctor, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. It's great to be here. Many areas where we can go in discussion. Um, this idea of tobacco harm reduction I want to talk about, but let's first talk about the whole idea that the smoking rate in this country has dropped. I believe the fig- figure is that it's down to 14% as of 2016. Is that right? It sure is. Uh, smoking rates have been dropping. Actually, they've been dropping since the mid-1960s, but only at a slow pace. And now the pace appears to be picking up. What's prompting that? Well, we believe that smokers are switching to vastly safer products at a rapid pace. You've probably heard about Mm e-cigarettes. Those have come on in a boom. There's a lot of smokers switching over to satisfying and smoke-free electronic cigarettes. They're inhaling vapor, and that's vastly safer, according to the Royal College of Physicians in England. It's as much as 95% less hazardous than smoking. Smokers recognize this. They're satisfied by these products, and they're leaving cigarettes. Well, I guess um, the question becomes... How aware do you think most people are, and that includes smokers, when we talk about non-combustible products versus what traditionally had been smoked? Well, there's no question. Most smokers are confused. They see, all they see in the headlines are stories that tell them how bad e-cigarettes are because government authorities and researchers and a whole anti-tobacco community are emphasizing all of the bad qualities about e-cigarettes. And, and make, let's make sure we understand that e-cigarettes aren't perfect. They're not, uh, they're not a health product, but they are vastly safer been continuing to light up tobacco and inhale the smoke. So smokers are confused. They've been confused for 30 years about smoke-free, smokeless tobacco products. That is dip and chew products that have been a tradition, an American tradition, for hundreds of years. Smokers don't realize that those products are also safer. As you know, New York State is trying to ban all flavors for e-cigarettes. Is this a bad idea? Well, here's the problem with flavors. There, you need to have flavored tobacco products in order to make them enjoyable for adult users. If you remove all flavors, tobacco becomes a better pill to use, and no one is going to use it, at least no one's going to use legal products. 
Um, you know, imagine removing all flavors from alcohol. Okay, how, how enjoyable would that be? If you don't have beer, you don't have wine, you don't have the ability to flavor mixed drinks, who's going to drink 100% alcohol? So it, it's, it's, it's a, an insane attempt to prohibit tobacco by uh, using flavors as uh, an excuse to essentially prohibit all tobacco products. Um, and so it's not going to work. Uh, people are going to add flavors if they're prohibited. And uh, the prohibition is going to be meaningless. Hmm. The hard numbers would be roughly 35 million American adults still smoking. Um, and in a way, in many workplaces, that almost seems incredible that the figure is that high because there, are, again, are so many smoke-free workplaces. This idea of um, looking to quit smoking, some people can do it cold turkey. For some people, it's very difficult, and they go through attempt after attempt after attempt. The estimate, as I understand it, is that each year about one in ten smokers actually succeed in their attempt to quit. What about those other 90%? Well, that's exactly what safer tobacco products, those are the people that it's they're for. It's for, and I think your one in ten was a bit optimistic, to be honest with you. A lot of uh, there's a lot of studies that show more like one in twenty. Mm. And so, for those ninety or ninety-five percent of smokers who can't quit, tobacco companies are starting to market products that should be FDA approved to allow them to switch and and um, get their nicotine satisfaction without all of the bad toxic chemicals in smoke. It's a very simple concept. Despite the fact that 40,000 people die in auto accidents every year, we still continue to drive cars because we've made them safer. We have seatbelts, airbags, anti-lock brakes, collapsible auto frames, many things in automobiles to protect us. It's called harm reduction. It doesn't eliminate harm, but it does reduce the chance that we're going to get involved in a bad car accident that kills or seriously hurts us. The same should be true for tobacco. Right now, most Americans get their tobacco and nicotine pleasure through inhaling smoke. It's very toxic over the long run. And what we need to do is recognize as government authorities, the health establishment needs to recognize 
that people will always enjoy nicotine and tobacco. We cannot eliminate it. But we can have people get information about safer products that can satisfy them. They can, they can enjoy these products without all the harmful side effects of the smoke. We're talking with Dr. Brad Radu on our program. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Louisville, where he holds an endowed chair in tobacco harm reduction research. Uh, he is joining us in this hour of our program on FAN this morning. And what we'll do is um, cover some more areas. We'll also um, try to see if we can work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. If you're on point with some of the areas that are being talked about in our discussion, you can join us at 877-337-6666. That's our phone number. After our 8 o'clock update, it is the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf. And after our 9 o'clock update, we're moving into a big day of football on the fan. And appropriately enough, with Football Sunday, Malusis and Deal, that follows our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. Football Sunday along after our 9 o'clock update on The Fan. We are in a discussion with uh, Dr. Brad Radu on our program. Dr. Radu is uh, a professor of medicine at the University of Louisville. He holds an endowed chair in tobacco harm reduction research. And he is uh, joining us, talking with us about um, that topic and... um, about this whole idea of quitting smoking, too. A lot of people, their New Year's resolution is to uh, quit smoking. I thought it would be an appropriate time to have a discussion on uh, this topic because uh, we haven't touched on this much on this program uh, over the years, and usually this can spark some interesting areas of discussion. Let me also mention the fact that, yes, we are with you till 8 this morning. You want to join us in the discussion, 877 is our number here at the uh, fan. When we talk about this idea of trying to quit cigarettes, um, the Federal Food and Drug Administration in July had um, come out with an announcement about nicotine nicotine addiction and um, a new role for tobacco harm reduction. Can you tell our audience about that? Well, the FDA said that they're going to try to remove the nicotine in cigarettes. And how are they going to do that? Well, that's a good question. But that was the, uh, if you will, the stick. And the carrot was that they were going to evaluate smokeless tobacco and vapor products as options for the smokers. So that's, that's the carrot and stick approach from the FDA. And we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not the FDA can actually succeed if they lower the nicotine content of cigarettes. So the idea being they make them non-addictive, especially for children. But what the FDA didn't seem to recognize was was that if you make cigarettes non-addictive by reducing the nicotine, um, 
I think that's going to encourage smokers to seek those cigarettes in other ways. In other words, the black market. So, you know, this is this is uh, this is also going to be a long-term prospect. Uh, people that follow tobacco companies for a living don't believe it's going to happen within the next ten years. So, um, we'll see. Uh, it's sort of like uh, back when we had that, about 100 years ago, we had uh, something you may remember called Prohibition. Mm-hmm. And that worked out so well that, um, you know, they're, they're going to try it with tobacco now. But during Prohibition, the companies were allowed to make something called meal beer, which was alcohol-free beer. Well, that didn't work out well either. Nobody would drink it, and they stopped making it. So we'll see what happens with, uh, with nicotine-free cigarettes. I think it's going to go about the same, down the same pathway. This idea of um, the resolutions that people make uh, at the end of the year, the start of the new year, to quit smoking, first of all, is that an admirable um, goal, and is it even in this day and age? Is it a realistic one for people to make? Well, it is because people know they need to get away from the smoke. What they need to change is their resolution to not necessarily quit all tobacco and nicotine products. Because what an, another uh, thing that Americans completely misunderstand is that nicotine is a safe drug. It's about as safe to use as caffeine, which I'm enjoying right now. You probably are, too. True. Nicotine doesn't cause any of the diseases that people uh, have when they smoke doesn't cause cancer, doesn't cause any heart attacks or strokes, and doesn't cause emphysema. So people can enjoy and use nicotine as safely as they drink their coffee in the morning if they, do, if they consume it in smoke-free forms. And that's why all the tobacco companies are moving to safer alternatives, like camel snooze from Reynolds, General Snus from um, uh, Swedish Match. All of these products are available on the market in the U.S. They, are, they will satisfy smokers, and smokers will enjoy these products, and it will make the transition to quitting smoking a lot easier. I have to ask you, because last time that we talked, and this was going back a couple of years ago, and you and I spoke, um, one of the things that we talked about was what's really going on um, with this area of discussion, the idea of tobacco harm reduction in other countries. I mean, what kind of leadership is being shown there? Well, there's no question that Sweden is the leader uh, in the world with respect to tobacco harm reduction. So in Sweden, they use snus, which is a, a, 
a packet of tobacco, they slip it into their upper lip, and they enjoy tobacco and nicotine satisfaction completely invisibly, and they don't even spit. And men in Sweden have used this product for hundreds of years, and they simply don't smoke at the rates that uh, uh, Western Europe smokes at, um, the Americans smoke at. So they don't have any lung cancer, don't have any of the other smoking-related diseases. Now, this is starting to take hold in other countries. Well, uh, uh, two years ago, we probably didn't talk about Norway, which is adopting snus just like the Swedish men have done, and women to a certain extent. We're seeing tobacco harm reduction take hold in England, in the United Kingdom, because they have switched over to vapor products. The British government has encouraged smokers to switch, and they're dropping cigarettes at rapid rates in the UK. Japan has adopted a new heat not burn product that's available from several of the uh, tobacco companies. This is a product where the tobacco is not burned but heated very precisely to produce a vapor. And that product, that company that supplies the most uh, common product called Icos, that, that company has applied to market the heat not burn product in the U.S., but it is a kind of being um, delayed by the FDA. So that takes us right back to the FDA and the American government not recognizing these vastly safer products as alternatives for smokers. So the U.S. is falling behind at getting rid of cigarettes. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. Let's start on um, phones because I have a feeling we're going to wind up with some folks who will want to ask some questions. Let's go first to uh, Dan in Kingston. Dan, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning. Um, I, I'm a little floored by uh, your the doctors uh, basically advocating for selling all kinds of products and, you know, just use them a little more safely. So I have to ask the question, um, is his research underwritten or does his, 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 is his chair funded by not just tobacco companies, but by their outreach? Because, boy, I've never heard that. It's almost like he's like pushing cigarettes uh, just a little like on the light side. Dr. Ruben? Dan, that's a great question. My research is supported by unrestricted grants from tobacco manufacturers to the University of Louisville. I've been conducting research for 24 years, and my research has received funding. But the funding goes to the university, just like any other federal grant or industry grant. It goes to the university, and I'm paid a university professor's salary. And that's acknowledged not only on my blog, Raw Do Tobacco Truth, but in every single thing we publish in the professional literature or in the main media, 
that those facts are well known and well established. Dan, thank you for your question. Raising the point, that's the whole reason for having open phones here. 877-337-6666. You want to join us, ask a question of Dr. Brad Radu. In the course of our discussion, you can do so. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Football Sunday follows our 9 o'clock update on the fan. Uh, let's go back to the phones. As a matter of fact, let's go to uh, James in Hawthorne, New Jersey. James, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning. Thanks for taking the call. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to maybe have the doctor shed some light on why uh, he maybe believes or maybe he has some information on why the FDA and the U.S. government is uh, behind in, in comparison to these other countries and regulation and offering options to, uh, you know, to smoking and just safer alternative, alternatives. Is there a reason? Um, is it what m- some Americans believe uh, there being some political reasons? And money involved from you know the uh, the big companies that want tobacco products to stay around, and especially the cigarettes. That's a great question. I believe the reason that the Americans haven't moved toward tobacco harm reduction is the fact that the federal vision that is manifest in all of the agencies is what we call a tobacco-free society. Now, that's just another fancy word for prohibition. And so there, there is an extreme element in our healthcare system that believes that Americans will be tobacco-free eventually. I don't, and a lot of people don't believe that's going to be possible. And so we're trying to help smokers right now switch to products that would allow them to lead longer and healthier lives. But this tobacco-free vision is preventing government and medical authorities from recommending safer products. James, I hope that addressed your question and gives you an answer. Thank you for your call this morning. You want to join us in this discussion? You can. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at the FAN. We're talking with Dr. Brad Radu, who is a professor of medicine at the University of Louisville. He holds an endowed chair in tobacco harm reduction research, and he's talking with us this hour of our program on the FAN. We are with you until 8 this morning. Matter of fact, we'll be doing the same thing next week on our program. It's rolling up until 8 o'clock. Uh, Dr. Radu, as he has mentioned, has been involved in research and policy development regarding this uh, topic of tobacco harm reduction for the past uh, 20 years, and uh, he has a lot to share. You mentioned, uh, and I'd just like you to repeat your blog address. My blog address is easy. It's Radu, R-O-D-U, Tobacco Truth. Okay, so it's Radu Tobacco Truth, and that's the web address. We have a lot more to get to in our discussion. We'll also try to work in some more thoughts from some of the folks who are listening to us. Interesting discussion that we are having. Hopefully you are enjoying it. Football Sunday follows the 9 o'clock update. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. we got a lot of football action on the fan this Sunday. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We are in a discussion with uh, Dr. Brad Radu on our program. 
Dr. Radu is a professor of medicine at the University of Louisville. He holds an endowed chair in tobacco harm reduction research, and he's our guest this hour of our program. What we've tried to do as well is to work in some thoughts from some of the folks who are listening to us. 877-337-6666 is our phone number. Let's go to uh, Vinny on Long Island, who's been holding for a while. Vinny, thanks for holding on. Welcome to the fan. Hi, how you doing? Doing well, thank um, you. Just give me a little background. I smoked for 20 years, and I switched over to vaping about five years ago. Um, I started making my own uh, e-juice, too. But um, I noticed a different problem now. Like, I, I always wheezed, and I was heavy in the chest, um, out of breath from running. But I, now I get this, like, I guess uh, almost like a crackling in, in, uh, in my lungs from, from vaping. And I've read about popcorn lung. I've researched it. And I don't know what the, if the doctor knows any long-term effects on vaping or, you know, vaping dicetylene in certain chemicals. Is, that, is there anything been done with those studies? Well, Benny, uh, I'm sure you can understand that I can't offer medical advice over the radio uh, with respect to what you're experiencing. But I can say that, yes, popcorn lung was seen in workers that were making huge quantities of the popcorn flavoring, which involves several chemicals. Now, we're talking about workers who had huge, huge exposures to these chemicals. What a lot of people that are vaping don't understand is there's a, there have been some of those a very, very trace amounts of those chemicals in the e-liquid juices, some of them. But they don't understand that smokers actually get those chemicals too. When you burn mm-hmm. tobacco, you create some of those chemicals, and in fact, smokers get a lot more of those chemicals than vapors get. So, yeah. uh, and smokers don't get popcorn lung. So, this will give you some background. I blogged about this, put popcorn lung in my in the search function of my blog, and you can get information about this. All right, and I'm an advocate of vaping. I think it's much safer. I feel better. Um, I mean. Hands down, it's better than smoking. You know, um, I, I think anything in excess is bad. I'm, I vape too much, and that's on that's on me. It's just like drinking or gambling. If you do it too much, it's probably not good for you. But um, but thank you. I hey, you hey, Bob, you need to have Vinny back on, and he, he sounds like he's got an excellent uh, attitude toward this. Thank you for your call, Vinny, and your um, patience on the phone, too. Let's stay with folks on the phone. Let's stay on Long Island. As a matter of fact, we'll go to Mike next. Mike, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Hey, good morning. How are you today? Well, thank um, you. And yourself? Good, good. Very good. I, I wanted. I, I stopped smoking about five years ago, but I've been chewing the, the nicotine gum. I, I wanted to know uh, the long-term effects, or do you know of any of the nicotine gum? You know, Vinny, or excuse me, you know, we know that people can use nicotine long term and not have any effects, okay? Um, we know this because the snus users in Sweden, we can't really uh, detect any significant long term diseases. So you're using the gum, if the gum's satisfying you and you're really. Um, smoke free with the gum, keep 
keep on using it by all means. Uh, so nicotine isn't the problem. Oh, so okay, so I can still chew it. It's not. It's not going to kill me. Nicotine gum is safe if you use it just like they uh, intend for you to use it. Uh, uh, you know, it would be great if everybody was completely nicotine and tobacco free, but uh, if the gum is working for you and you're not smoking, that's the key to keep on smoke free. Mike, thank you Beautiful. for your call. Thank you for your call. Thank you so morning. much. Alrighty. You want to join us in the discussion, 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. Dr. Brad Radu is talking with us on our program. When we talk about the um, dangers of smoking, some health authorities will interchangeably use smoking and tobacco when uh, they're talking about getting into discussions about smoke-free products. Is that misleading? Absolutely it is. I've blogged on that. The idea of inserting tobacco when they mean smoking, the two aren't similar. The tobacco plant is not a dangerous plant. You have to burn the tobacco and inhale the smoke in order to get all the bad effects. So, yes, this idea of substituting tobacco when they mean smoking is detrimental and it's hurting american smokers because it's giving them the wrong impression with the fda federal food and drug administration uh considering harm reduction to be a viable strategy for adult smokers who are struggling to quit um I'd like you to give maybe some examples of how somebody who falls in that category today of being an addicted smoker could reduce the harm to themselves and to those around them. Because there's people who are just joining us in our discussion. That's why I'm asking you. Dr. Radu? Dr. Radu? Oops. Okay. I think we've uh, lost touch with Dr. Radu for a moment there. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Brad Radu, who is endowed chair with the Tobacco Harm Reduction Program at University of uh, Louisville in uh, Kentucky. He has uh, joined us this hour of our program on the fan. Uh, at Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update football Sunday program with Mark Malusis and David Deal is along after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. And, of course, we've got a, a football triple header on the fan today. Lots of action. This is the place where you want to be on uh, Sunday mornings. And I'll tell you what we'll do, too, is um, let's try to work in somebody else who's on the phone. Let's go to uh, George in Yonkers. George, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, excellent program, as usual. Thank you very much for uh, for having it. Thank you. Uh, Mike. My question was, I found a product that's uh, called On, and it is a nicotine pouch that contains no tobacco whatsoever. And for the first time in my life, I've been able to completely quit smoking, uh, thankfully, 
And I was curious to note what the doctor felt about this product that is completely tobacco-free. Yes, I've heard about that product, and I'm an advocate of using any product that keeps you away from the smoke. So keep on using it, and um, good luck with it. Thank you very much, Doctor. I just It's a product that I don't hear discussed a lot, and I, I must say, it is, it, I've tried everything under the sun, and uh, like I said, I'm 54 years old. I started smoking when I was a teenager, and uh, a year ago I found these, and it's amazing that I was able to completely, without stress, strain, nothing. It's been great, and I think uh, it's something that's right in the alley of what you're talking about. How many yeah. times before, George, had you tried to, to quit smoking? It would be futile for me to count, but I'm going to say, uh, I'll say this. It was my New Year's resolution for uh, at least at least 20 years. Mm. And, I, and I would fail miserably, and it resulted in, in I mean, I don't want to discount products that others may have success with, but uh, Chantix was not a, 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 a win for me. Um, there was a lot of products I tried, uh, you know, and, and nothing worked. And everything would result in extreme, uh, uh, you know, social discomfort and just basically I would shut it down and go back to the cigarettes. Mm. And now I find I could go, I could commit all the, you know, oh, I can't go to a bar. Oh, I can't stay out late. None of that matters. I could just carry on with this product. Yes, I am, and I know I am, using nicotine. And yes, nicotine is addictive. And anything that you overuse is never good. I do not overuse this product. And uh, I, I, I try to get young people that I, that I speak to and tell them, try this. And, you know, it's, wor- it's a worthy endeavor, and you will quit smoking. So... I just wanted the confidence, although I enjoy it and I feel it works. I, I'm very happy to hear that the doctor who's done this extensive research is also on board. And now I feel more confident when I try to, for lack of a better term, sell. And I, I have no interest or no stock in this product. I'm just, uh, you know, very glad to have found it. Well, thank you very much for your call this morning and um, providing some information on this, too. Certainly good luck. Continue. All right. Back Thanks to the uh, phone we go. Let's see up next in, uh, where are we headed next? Gary in uh, Colts Neck, New Jersey. Gary, thanks for holding on. Hey, Welcome guys. to the fan. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Same to you. Um, hey, you know, I, I'm just curious. I'm not a smoker. I know a lot of people that do smoke. And I have a couple of questions for the doctor and yourself. Um, smoking today... Is it much different than it was back in, let's say, the 70s? Because I'm a middle-aged guy. Um, is, there, is there more nicotine nowadays than there was back 30, 40 years ago? Is it more of a, like, almost like, you know, you're, you're feeding into the fuel, you know, into the fire? Are, we, are these, are these uh, tobacco companies adding a little bit more to, to make you come back to spend more money? Because it just seems to me like, it's getting crazier and crazier with people with their smoking. Uh, there's more, uh, I want to call it 
ADHD, whatever. I think we always had it, but I think in general, people smoking, it's like, I don't know. I, I just don't, I'm just curious if they're putting anything else in there to make people spend more money. Almost like a subliminal message. Um, well, you know, that's a great question. But what people got to understand is that tobacco and nicotine have been powerfully addictive since Columbus discovered natives using these products in the New World back in 1492. Humans love tobacco. It's addictive. It really affects the way they, their brain, their behavior. And so I don't really believe that today's products are that much more addictive, if at all, than they were in the uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s. Nicotine and tobacco are powerful, and we just need, we now understand that if you get away from the smoke, you don't have all of the health effects. So I believe that we have the solutions now and uh, to get away from the smoke. Okay. I just, I, I just, you know, I have nothing against anybody if they want to smoke, but sometimes, you know, if you're out to dinner, you know, whether you're out of the country or not, especially out of the country, it's almost like people don't care if you're trying to eat your meal. They both smoking in. And when you're not around the smoke and all of a sudden you actually are around people, you could actually smell it. Even if they're not smoking, you could actually smell the nicotine and everything coming off their body. It's just, I don't know, it's, I just, it's a filthy habit, and honestly, I'm no angel, but at the end of the day, it tells you it causes cancer. Why would you want to smoke if it causes cancer? I know it's a loaded question, but I just don't understand. I just don't understand why people just can't be happy and do the right thing for people, times, no matter what. I know it's a, I'm talking a little around circles, but I don't understand. It just seems like today people are just like out of control. It's just, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm asking the wrong question, but it just seems like everything is just, everything is seems so much faster. Uh, so that's, but I appreciate the, uh, the talk. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your call this morning, Gary. And thank you to the folks who joined us on the phone that we can't get to. Um, tried to do as many folks as we possibly could. Interesting discussion with Dr. Brad Radu on our program. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly good luck continued with your work, too. We're going to make way for our top of the hour update. Sports Edge with Rick Wolf is along. Football Sunday, Malusis and Deal follows our 9 o'clock update and an NFL triple header on the fan this Sunday. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.